Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is another installment in our self-care summer series. This episode had my mind blown. I went into it with a lot of hesitation and resistance. Then in my research, I learned about why I had that resistance, and I found out about a whole new field in therapy. Uh, Much like some of the other topics we've discussed so far, I want to let you know that if this topic makes you feel triggered or, like me, avoidant, uh, that's okay, and it's normal, and I encourage you to push past that and learn all of the wild things I learned in putting together this episode. We have a couple guests this week, one you will recognize, and one is a new voice to the show, and I think they do a great job of breaking down this form of self-care that you may not think about. This is the Self-Care Summer episode on personal finance. You and I have lots in common, my request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? When I started this whole summer series and I began researching topics to cover, I saw financial management and nearly vomited on my keyboard. Okay, (laughs) that may be an exaggeration, but I definitely had like a guttural reaction of some sort. And true to form, that made me lean in harder and find out why I felt that way. Of course, this reaction to money, finances, budgeting, and all that stuff is nothing new. I've had it my entire life my entire adult life anyway, but what I learned about that has exploded my brain and has me reading textbooks for fun, which is not something I think I've ever said before. So I want to do something a little different in the beginning here and walk you through my research and how I found our second speaker for this episode. To do that, we have to start with our familiar first speaker. My name is Jenny Helms and I'm a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist. Jenny was the first person I reached out to regarding financial management and personal finance as a form of self-care. And I started with a basic question of why finance is part of self-care at all. I think it's hugely underrated when it comes to self-care. I should say generally as a culture, this is an area we're still weird about talking about publicly. For my own journey, healing my money story has been so important for my well-being, minimizing anxiety, for making better choices, for my relationships. And again, I think when we're talking about self-care, it's one of those things people don't realize when you start to heal your money story, it does have this like lifting of like a cloud of anxiety. There's multiple ways that having an unhealed money story can really wreak havoc on our self-care and how we feel and basically the anxiety we live with day to day or the financial like challenges and hardships that can really eat away at our freedom and our independence and really like achieving the things we want to achieve. This hit me hard and we had only just gotten started. I wondered how common it was for people to feel shame the way that I do when it comes to money. I think shame is definitely a huge part of people's money story. I think shame and worth, this weird idea that your worth and your goodness and your skill and your intelligence is, you know, correlated to your, your wealth. Even with people who have wealth, there can still be a lot of shame and ego and angst and still not feeling good enough. There's a lot of weirdness that people can project onto money, including like shame, worth. I want to take a pause right there because there's something Jenny has mentioned half a dozen times already that I had never heard before. Money story. Is this a term I should already know? 
She mentioned healing your money story and knowing your money story. And I've never even heard of the term. So what is a money story? When I say like money story, that can maybe sound like a really vague money story. What is that? We all have a story about money. Uh, no matter what kind of wealth we grew up in, like we could see wealth as like evil or people with wealth as evil. We could see people that have less wealth as less than. We could have all these different beliefs around money, how we should think about it, how we should not think about it. I mean, I know for me, like I had all sorts of different beliefs around money and they just kept me stuck. First of all, same. My thoughts and feelings around money for almost my entire life kept me stuck. Stuck in a box, stuck in a mindset, stuck in certain jobs. But identifying that this is a thing that there's a whole term for, well, it sent me down a rabbit hole. But it also introduced me to someone new. My name is Lindsay Brian Podvin. I am a social worker and financial therapist, and I'm the founder and owner of Mind Money Balance. How I found Lindsay was part of my whole rabbit hole of research. Going through my usual peer-reviewed journals and struggling with search terms, I decided to just search for what I was looking for, a therapist with an expertise on finances. I searched financial therapist and up popped Lindsay. So what is financial therapy? So financial therapy is a relatively new niche within the world of psychotherapy. Financial psychology has been around for a very long time. Behavioral finance has been around for a very long time, but it's mostly been used by advertising and marketing firms to get consumers to buy more things. Um, so about a decade ago, it sounds like I'm setting up a punchline to a joke, but it was literally a financial planner and a therapist walk into a conference. And they essentially found that both the financial planner and the therapist had areas where they felt like they needed more information so they could better serve their clients, but they didn't want to step on the toes or rather step outside of their scope of practice. So they kind of came up with a small group of people from different disciplines, both psychotherapy and financial planning, came together to start to brainstorm an idea of how can we better serve folks who are struggling with money. So financial therapy is really the study of or the therapy of helping people with the emotional and psychological side of money so they can better make wise financial decisions that work for them that don't cause them anxiety, depression, or other mental health symptoms. So that's, that's financial therapy in a nutshell. Not only did Lindsay blow my mind, but I think I started checking her availability immediately. As someone going into this field and someone who often sinks into books and peer-reviewed journals on the topic of therapy, how come I'd never met a financial therapist? Financial therapists are thankfully starting to grow in number. When I was certified in 2018, I was one of 30. And now in 2022, there are around 300 in the U.S. Um, so it's growing, which is great. But as you can imagine, 300 across an entire country simply isn't enough. And as more and more people learn about it, more and more people are like, hey, <laughs> I want that. Okay, so we have set the stage. We've introduced Money Story, sometimes called Money Script in the field of financial therapy. With that out of the way, let's jump into giving you some tangible methods and proven reasoning for why personal finance or financial management should be part of your regular self-care routine. (music) 
In case you haven't realized or thought about it, money touches everything we do. Even when we think about the previous episodes of this series, focusing on specific self-care items, right? Cooking requires food and pots and pans. Exercise can involve equipment or memberships or at least some clothing and shoes. Heck, even the device you are listening to this on likely impacts you or impacted you in some way financially. Then, whether or not we can do these things or how we feel about spending money on them is part of the same narrative. Well, as you hinted at, money touches all aspects of our life. It impacts what we can and cannot spend on things to take care of ourselves. It impacts our stress levels. It impacts our relationship with our family and our friends and our partners. So it's really important to think about when we say self-care, I usually tack on the word financial in front of it because we have to practice financial self-care as well. Because you could say, oh, I'm taking a self-care day and you know, play hooky from work and go on a bike ride. And all of those things are great. And I encourage you to do them. And if taking that time away from work is going to cause you more stress because you aren't able to maybe pay for the things like the gas to take you know, a nice bike ride out of town and all that. Essentially what I'm saying is if you want to practice financial self-care, we don't want to practice financial self-care that, or self-care that further digs you into a financially stressful situation. So financial self-care is the idea of implementing money into your wellness practices so you can better afford to take care of yourself spiritually, emotionally, physically, all of that good stuff. This has always sounded like the worst thing in the world to me. Implementing money into my wellness practice is a task I've actively resisted most of my life. But as we learn in therapy, where there's resistance, there may be something to work out there, right? So in my research on financial therapy and your individual money story or money script, I uncovered a lot of useful information. And if you're one of those people who love to do personality tests or work with the Enneagram, you're probably going to love this. So when it comes to money stories or money scripts, there are four main buckets that each of us fall into. Remember that these are underlying beliefs or assumptions that we have about money, and they're likely only partially true, but recognizing where we fall is the first step to implementing a self-care routine that involves finance and possibly healing our money story. The four types are money avoidance, that's mine, money worship, money status, and money vigilance. The titles are somewhat self-explanatory, but I encourage you to look them up and find out where you live in your thoughts and feelings around money. When I read the full two-page description of money avoidance from the 2015 textbook titled Financial Therapy, I found myself laughing uncontrollably at how accurately this random book was able to describe my thoughts and feelings on money in great and very exact detail. To show that this was spot on, I had Erica, my wife, read hers, which is Money Vigilance, and she had the same reaction, just nodding along in agreement to the whole description. But now that I have like identified this money story, I mean, what do I do? Am I alone in this struggle? Well, basically, I would say you're not alone, right? We, and I should, should say most of us, have not had exposure to financial planning lessons, advice, wisdom, or knowledge as we grew up. And the reason I say as we grew up is because like most things in psychology, 
our brain does the bulk of it. It's developing between the ages of zero and seven, zero and eight. So if we go back to the lessons we learned about money in our early childhood, it helps to set a picture for why we do what we do now. Because some behavioral finance researchers have found that we have formed our beliefs about money or to your point, Justin, our money story by the time we're about eight years old. So when we get that icky feeling when it comes to sitting down with our money now, it could be a lot of old stories, old junk, old baggage that no longer is applicable, but because we really haven't been in a society that's open to talking about money, we don't know what to do with those feelings. And a lot of us, through no fault of our own, have a great coping skill of procrastination. It works really, really well until it doesn't any longer. Hey, Lindsay, get out of my head. I feel attacked. But seriously, procrastination has worked really well before until it didn't. It works really well because it makes it so that we don't have to face an uncomfortable situation. But then the flip side of that is then when you are forced to face it, it can feel really overwhelming. So to that person who's sitting with that ickiness and is like, oh, I have to sit down with money. What do I even do? I think that's your opening question right there. What do I even need to do with my money? And really thinking about what do I need? Do I need to know what I earn? Do I need to know what I spend? Do I need to know what my bills are due? Do I need to be thinking about my kid's college fund? What are kinds of the things on my financial to-do list that have been kind of lingering in the back of my mind and kind of doing a brain dump of all that junk that's in your head tasks-wise? And then we can kind of take a look at the emotional stuff and kind of figure out what feelings are coming up when we look at those different tasks. So first is just getting it all out on the table and labeling it and then making a decision from there of what makes sense to do next. Laying it all out on the table can be a daunting task in itself. Whether you're technically doing fine with money and have no real debt issues, or you find yourself in a place where you've been procrastinating and avoiding bills and responsibilities, sometimes it's just not something you want to do. It can be especially hard when your money story can lead you down some pretty bad roads. Whether it's avoiding money, spending too much, or even spending too little, the ramifications on your health are damning. In a 2008 article in the journal Psychological Services, they note that all the above spending habits, in addition to other traits driven by your money story, like being materialistic, are all related to lower levels of well-being. And those who have plenty of money, but have yet to address the relationship to it, such as those who are wealthy and materialistic, report lower levels of self-actualization, vitality, and happiness, and higher levels of anxiety, physical symptoms, and unhappiness. When we think about these negative feelings, though, and we think about how much of it is instilled within us at a young age, how can we control our own narrative and wording? And can money really ever buy happiness? Here's Lindsay again. There are two kind of through lines that I see regardless of what somebody is bringing into the practice. And one is this kind of sense of like, I just don't get money. I'm not good at money. I'm bad at money. And I think it's really important to separate that from who we are because nobody's bad at money. We might have made mistakes with money or unwise choices with money, but to say you're bad at money is to really put on a ton of shame onto yourself and to further bury yourself in, in judgment and harm. So to separate it out and say, I made a mistake with money instead of saying I'm bad with money, it's a little bit of you know mental separation, but it makes a difference. So that's one thing that I hear all the time. And then the other thing is that in the United States, we've really been fed this narrative that if you follow these five steps, 
your life will be happy, you'll have enough money and everything will be okay. And I think it's important to just examine that from a more curious and realistic based lens that yes, when you make more money up to a certain point, research does show that your happiness does increase, but it kind of levels off around 75K. Now that study was done about 10 years ago. So with inflation, we're probably talking closer to like 95 or 100K. So if you think about that, that your happiness increases as your salary increases up to about $100,000 per year, then after that, your happiness levels out. To me, that makes a lot of sense in that by the time you're hitting six figures in income, you're not only taking care of your basic needs, you also have a cushion and, and the ability to do some additional things for fun. And so once we've kind of taken care, if you can remember Psychology 101, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like this triangle. And at the bottom of that triangle is making sure your basic needs are met. So like food, sex, shelter, making sure that you have the basics to survive. And once we're generating $100,000 or more a year, we have hopefully more than enough to meet that bottom and then start moving up. And that likely reduces some of that anxiety and, and makes sense why people would be happier. But then you notice it levels off. So it's important for folks who maybe, um, I see this, this kind of story a lot for folks who grew up um, working class or in poverty, and then now are multi six-figure earners or, you know, have some kind of big shot job, they'll, they'll come to me like, I still feel like shit. It makes no sense. I'm making all this money. I don't get it. And it's kind of like, yeah, money helps. And also there's other stuff that money can't solve for. And that is not to say that money doesn't buy happiness because I do think it does up to a point. While everyone's story is unique, I want to share part of mine that may be relatable or provide context or maybe help you if you find yourself in what you deem to be a hopeless position. After maxing out my credit cards consistently from the ages of 18 to 23 and avoiding bills to the point there was a lien filed, I was sitting at a credit score of around 525. It was bad, like really bad. I felt buried and helpless. I had just started dating Erica and we were about to move in together and I felt like such a garbage person. I constantly went through cycles where I would lay out all my bills and come up with a plan and then get overwhelmed and give up on everything. I needed to build my credit score back up, but I couldn't get approved for anything to do that. So it felt like an evil catch 22. I finally signed up for a bogus credit card with a $250 limit, a $35 monthly fee and $120 annual fee. The APR was something crazy, like 30%. And I had to be fine with it because it was all I could get. I kept a rotating balance of about a hundred bucks on there for two years. And then I was finally able to get a different card and cancel that one. I found myself in a place between pride and resentment. I did the work of raising my credit score, which today sits in the 800s, which is crazy. But I was also just thinking about growing up and I was angry that no one taught me otherwise. I certainly didn't know about money stories and I had no positive role models in my household for money. Again, I was asking myself, am I alone here? I think most of us don't learn things about money until it like hits us in the face. So I would say you're not alone, but that doesn't help very much for the person who's experiencing a financial stressor. So outside of that, you're not alone. I would say 
give yourself a lot of permission to learn about money. And what I mean by that is don't feel like you have to know everything immediately. Give yourself a lot of space and compassion to learn over time. You don't have to do everything perfectly with money and you never will, but we want to learn some of those basics. And so when we think about, in my mind, there are kind of three pillars of personal finance. One is making sure that you have more money each month than you spend each month. Some people call that a budget. Some people call it a spending plan, which is my preferred term. But that's kind of the first kind of pillar you need in personal finance. Am I making enough to pay all of my bills? That's kind of step one. Pillar two is can I save for short-term goals. Short-term goals could be an emergency fund. It could be saving up a down payment for a new car or a new apartment. Um, But it's having, what do you do if you have a little bit left over? Where can you put that money and what goals do you have for yourself? And then three is kind of thinking about your future self. And this particular pillar is kind of big and gnarly in that it could mean a lot of things, but we really think about saving for retirement or really investing for retirement. And another thing to think about when we're thinking about our future self is paying down debt. So kind of decide which of those three you want to tackle first. In most cases, it makes sense to start with your income and your expenses and start there and then kind of learn a little bit more about debt, retirement, and savings, but take it a little bit at a time. And the other thing I'll say is that we have such a better um, breadth and wealth of financial information than we did 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, in that the personal finance field used to really be dominated by these loud very shame, very blame, highly individualistic noises and voices. You know, the people who would say, if you have debt, you shouldn't see the inside of a restaurant. Or if you have debt, you're a bad person or you're bad with money. And nowadays, I think, especially as, you know, millennials have kind of taken a hold of the personal finance industry and they kind of graduated into the Great Recession and now with Gen Zers kind of learning a bit more about money. There's just so much more empathy and compassion than there was. So if the first few people you listen to who are talking about personal finance make you feel like garbage, that's a good sign to to, to tune into somebody else, to listen to somebody else's podcast or follow somebody else on Instagram because you can learn quite a bit um, and you don't have to listen to the first person who you come across. Okay. So I guess part of the problem is that I was born in the wrong time period. But seriously, Lindsay brings up a good point. We need to give ourselves grace and make sure we are surrounding ourselves with resources that practice empathy and compassion. Constantly telling ourselves the same story and the same narrative and driving shame further into our financial lives is only going to bury us deeper. So if you've gotten this far and you're thinking of ways to start a financial self-care routine, maybe you're already Googling your money story, maybe you're getting all your bills together, A lot of people try to start the same way, and that's finding those extraneous expenditures, right? Save $9.99 by canceling some streaming service or app purchase on your phone. But is that a good place to start? Is the goal to simply make more money than you're spending or spend less money than you're earning? We forget so often with that equation of making sure you have more or you earn more than you spend is that there are two kind of factors that we can change there. And a lot of people try to change the spending factor, the the Netflix, the, the DoorDash, the Peloton app, whatever. They try to get rid of those things. And that's helpful. But one thing that's going to accelerate your ability to have more money than you spend 
is to earn more money. And I, I really don't think we do a good job of educating ourselves and our, our friends and our peers about the importance of negotiating and asking for more money. You know, millennials get a bad rep for quote unquote job hopping. But what we see is when you leave a company or when you job hop, you're more likely to make more money versus staying at a company and getting like a two and a half percent cost of living increase. So getting comfortable asking for more is so much more impactful in most cases than cutting the 999 streaming service. It's not that you can't do both, but if you can generate more income, that's going to help you move that needle much more quickly. If I could reach through your device and crank up the volume, I would do it right now and repeat what Lindsay just said. Get comfortable asking for more money. This is even more important for women. We live in a patriarchal society and as recent as 2020, CNBC found that 60% of women have never negotiated their salary. That's wild. This is all circling around knowing your worth, but I think it also ties right back into your individual money story, right? If you have shame or secrecy beliefs about money, it's probably even more difficult to bring it up and speak up for yourself. Finally, if you're at square one and you just want to learn more or feel better about your finances, there's a bunch of great resources. There are free resources that I think most of us don't know about <laughs> because, again, hello. Um, but if you call your local 211, uh, that number is a resource hotline that is available across the U.S., and they specifically have people that they can direct you to or organizations that they can direct you to who help folks with financial concerns. Because the catch-22 here is, if I have no money, how can I pay somebody to help me manage my money, right? And so places like the United Way often provide financial literacy counseling or financial counseling. Other great resources are local credit unions. Most credit unions, not only are they community owned, but they also provide a lot of community education. So if you get on their email list or if you head into their lobby and their branch, they'll usually have a brochure of different um, classes that they offer or teach. So there are a lot of resources out there, but it can be a maze to try and find them. So that's kind of like where I'd start feeling. Like I don't even know what's what. Try 211, try one of those local nonprofits, try your local credit union. A lot of those will have a lot of great education for you. And then from there, you can kind of decide what makes the most sense. But that's some good, high quality, free education that you can get right away. Um, and all these nonprofits, including credit unions, have to be accredited, right? So they have to uphold to some sort of standard. So you're not going to walk into a credit union and they're going to sell you NFTs or crypto or something super high risk like that. They're going to say, okay, let's figure out how to budget, how to spend. Let's figure out what your credit score is. I started out my discussion with Lindsay and Jenny thinking about how money touches on everything. And I thought about something I heard years ago about the biggest stressors in our life, divorce, moving, illness, job loss, and death of a loved one. All of those things have significant impact on your finances. And while there is a huge emotional impact to all of those things, I can't help but wonder if they would still be in the top five stressful events if you didn't need to worry about any costs involved with them. I hope you've gained some knowledge and insight from this episode, but I also hope for some of you, it ignited a fire of curiosity about what your individual money beliefs are and what your money story is. I hope you can begin to heal that money story and enjoy a life where financial self-care is just self-care and part of your regular routine. 
I would like to thank Jenny Helms for all of her help this summer. This was the last episode she contributed to. So if you enjoyed what she said today or in all of the previous episodes she has been a part of, please go follow her on social media at Jenny Ann Helms. Her content is helpful, unique, and super popular. Check out that TikTok. I also have to take my hat off and give a huge thanks to Lindsay Bryan Podvin. You can find out more about her financial therapy practice, coaching, and her podcast all at mindmoneybalance.com. Lindsay is a wealth of information and someone I hope to be talking to a lot more in the future. It is August. We are winding down our self-care summer series with only a couple episodes left. It's been so much fun and so rewarding putting these out there. And based on my feedback, I imagine you're enjoying these as much as I am. So I will will keep this format in mind for other special episodes going forward as well. And I also want to thank Talia Dalton for the theme music and an extra large bear hug. Thank you to all of the Patreon supporters of the show. Patreon is a platform for creative people like me to give freebies, extras, and behind the scenes stuff to my fans and listeners. It's only about a dollar a month and the money goes directly to supporting this show. So if you want to know more or sign up, head over to patreon.com slash friendrequestpod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash friendrequestpod and start getting goodies like the transcript for this episode. Okay, I'm going to go get the old balance sheet out and redefine my own money story. I will talk to you guys next week. Uh, Bye-bye.